Hello and shalom from Jerusalem. Uh, what follows is the second part of our MST live stream, uh, taking a deep look at the Magid Studies Internach series from the end of January 2021. Uh, our guest host again, Sarah Ridner, was joined by Dr. Tova Ganzel, author of Ezekiel, From Destruction to Restoration, Rabbi Yaakov Beasley, author of Nachum, Chabakuk and Zephaniah, Lights in the Valley, and Rabbi Michael Hatton, author of both Joshua, The Challenge of the Promised Land, and Judges, The Perils of Possession. Um, our guests spoke about their methodologies, their motivations, uh, and why we should be investing time to learn more of their chosen sefer. Again, we're grateful to our partners on these events, uh, both 929, Herzog College, the Midrash Art Baralan University, and Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. Please enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Magid Studies in Tanakh Live, an opportunity to delve deeper into some of the remarkable books and ideas recently published by the Magid imprint of Koran Publishers. The Magid Studies in Tanakh series and the Magid Tanakh Companion series explore the literary artistry and historical context of the Bible using an innovative interdisciplinary approach that combines traditional Jewish commentaries with contemporary scholarly techniques. Each one of these Magid volumes presents exciting new ways to plumb the depth and relevance of the Bible, our most foundational sacred text. I'm delighted to host this evening because I'm such a personal fan of these books. They've brought meaning and insight into my own life as a religious Jew and a student of Tanakh. The authors we're going to hear from tonight are Dr. Tova Ganzel, Rabbi Michael Hatton, and Rabbi Yaakov Beasley. Please remember that throughout the event, you're welcome to ask questions on either of our live stream platforms on Facebook or YouTube. We'll be paying attention to these questions and we'll hopefully have time to direct them to our speakers at the end. If you like what you hear tonight, you're invited to purchase these and other wonderful volumes on the Corin website. Right now at a special discounted price of 20% off with a discount MST Live. Our first speaker this evening is Dr. Tova Ganzel. Dr. Genzel is a lecturer in Bible and Halakha at Bar-Ilan University and a certified Yoetzet Halakha, Women's Halakhic Advisor. She's also the former director of the Bar-Ilan Beit Midrash for Women. Tonight we're going to hear about Dr. Genzel's book on Ezekiel, From Destruction to Redemption. Yechezkel is not a simple book to understand, and Dr. Genzel offers a lucid and incredibly thorough guide, explaining its most difficult and mysterious passages both in their immediate setting and within the context of Tanakh as a whole. She doesn't offer any simple resolutions, but sharpens our sense of the complexities of the book raises and the relevance of, his, of its messages for our time. Dr. Genzel, we would love to hear more about your remarkable book. And also, if you could share some thoughts on our guiding question for the evening. How is Sefer Yecheskel essential to our understanding of Tanakh more broadly? Thank you so much, Dr. Genzel. Good evening. First of all, I want to thank Magid for uh, taking this production of this book through, and I want to thank everyone who organized this evening, and thank you, Sarah, for uh, coordinating the questions here. Um, so when I look at Yechezkel and I think about the general audience, and the first thing that I'm usually told is uh, there are three things people know about the book of Yechezkel. There's the, chapter, the first chapter, what we call Ma'asem el Kava the divine curate, and everyone knows that they really can't study that. It's a secret. It's a very well-known secret because we read in the Aftar of Shavuot, but it's a secret. 
The second thing everyone knows is that there's the chazon Vishot. There's a dry bones vision that we often uh, discuss after uh, hol- remembering the Holocaust and other um, tragic events. And then there's what people call Milchemet Gogu Magog, which is really, I would say, Milchemet Gog Me'eretz HaMagog, from the land of Magog. But that's about what people know about the Book of Yechizkel. Um, what got me interested about the Book of Yechizkel was that I was looking around uh, in the Tanakh to try to figure out uh, who discusses which of the prophets uh, prophets give us a future uh, vision or talk about the future or have something to say about the future. And when I was first discovering um, and learning in depth myself the Book of Yechizkel, I think the first thing that I saw was that it has a very, very detailed plan uh, for the future, which is why it actually, uh, and here I connect right to your question here, uh, Sarah, about why it may or may not be relevant, depend how we look at prophetic literature and what we think about its materializing uh, even till today. But um, let me step one back, I'll take one step back and just give uh, a general description of what we have in this really, really fascinating book that has uh, 48 chapters. So really the prophet of Ezekiel um, is at a very, very critical 22 years uh, in, in the history of Israel. We're talking about 22-year period from, nine, fi, from 593 BCE, which is the fifth year of the exile of Yehoiachin, until 571 BCE, which is the 20th, what, 27th year after Yehoiachin was exiled. And in these um, very, very uh, tense 22 years, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. But that's not unique to Yechizkel, because that we can also hear from in Yermiao, we can hear a response in Echa. What's unique to Yechizkel is really the fact that he was exiled to Bavel, and he's actually giving his prophecy in Babylonia, and he's talking to Jews who are now exiled to Bavel and kind of assume that they were not, are not going to be any more relevant for the continuation of Israel's nation just like the 10 tribes about 150 years beforehand who exiled from Israel turned irrelevant. I mean, maybe we might find some of the Shvatim in recent years and Shevet Dan maybe is in Ethiopia and in different uh, places in diaspora. But if we look at the Tanakh, then anyone exiled before became irrelevant to the continuation of the Jewish people. And surprisingly enough, not only do the people exile with Yechizkel before the temple is destroyed, but still, still stay relevant, the, prof- the prophet Yechazkel actually tells them that Hashem is going to be with them in a version of a mikdash me'at, a small temple. Now, I know today we use that to say, to discuss or to describe uh, bitknesi, synagogue. But really, uh, if you think about it in those times, we're actually talking about a real mikdash me'at. They left the temple in Jerusalem, the temple still standing. And they're going to exile, and Yechezkel promises them that God's with them in a small, in a version of a small temple in Bavin. In those years, the first 24 chapters of the book, which discuss those years before the, destro- the temple is destroyed, um, Yechezkel is convincing the nation that really uh, something dramatic is going to happen in Jerusalem. The temple will be destroyed, and that they have to base themselves as a continuation of the Jewish nation in exile. That's a very hard um, message to give. 
but and he do he does it in many different ways. You can read the book to figure that out. Well, how many creative ways he has to do that? Um, lying on one side, not eating for a long time, uh, describing what happens after his wife's death as a metaphor to the nation, and so on. Then we have a group of uh, chapters from twenty five to thirty two that's um, very similar to other prophets, where they have a group uh, they have a group of chapters for the nations. I'm not going to discuss that here. But then from chapter 33 and on to the end of the book, the prophet actually is told that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And now the nation has to try to figure out what happens now that the first time in history, they're in exile, the temple is destroyed, they're Jews in, still in Israel, they're Jews in Egypt, they're Jews in Babel in Babylonia. Who is the continuation of the Jewish people? And where does God stand? And what are his future plans for the uh, future of the nation? And that's really what the, uh, I think the essence of the book is about. Meaning, if we're talking about all the chapters until the restoration chapters, we're talking about a background for us to understand what does God accept from a nation that's divided, that's for the first time in history in diaspora. This is really 597. That's really the beginning of the diaspora jury until today. Uh, the fundamental assumptions of how Jews should worship God in exile was right then and is right till today. And all I would say, the guidance that we have, the prophetic guidance that we have for how a Jewish nation can live simultaneously in two centers and the questions of where is God? Who, who, who's, who's is God? Does he belong to one place? Does he belong to more than one place? Um, we have Purim right around the corner. You know, Purim takes place when the second temple was already built in Jerusalem, but many Jews are still in Babylonia and we and in, later on in Persia, and we never hear of this temple in the Jerusalem. The foundations for how do Jews act in Persia when, even though there's a temple in Jerusalem, uh, were laid in the years that Yechezkel prophesied to Jews in Babylonia before the temple was destroyed and there was a temple in Jerusalem, but also after the temple was destroyed and the Jewish uh, communities were divided into two separate centers. So if I have to uh, conclude, I would say in a nutshell, that's what's very substantial about this book is that it really teaches us how to live without a temple. And it teaches us how to live when there are Jews divided into two centers, when there are Jews in Israel and Jews in diaspora. And it asks the big questions of personal responsibility, of relationship between the centers, of where does God uh, belong when Jews are in two centers? And I think above all, it answers a big question of how do we deal with a crisis that we never anticipated before and we have to deal with for the first time. So for all those reasons, I'm fascinated with the book of Yechezkel. Um, we're very lucky. As opposed to Yeshayahu, Yirmiyahu, and other books, it's very organized, it's very systematic, it's easier to learn than what it, it seems, I think. The dates are very clear, um, and I really think that anyone who these big questions um, kind of makes them curious to know what would be a prophetic answer, then I think the book of Yechezkel is the best book to study. So, thank you.
Thank you so much, Dr. Genzel, for that small but completely accurate taste of what makes your book so engaging and fascinating. And it's a reminder about how crucial the message of Yechezkel is, even in our time. Thank you so much. Um, I'm honored to now introduce Rabbi Michael Hatton, our next speaker. Uh, Rabbi Hatton teaches Tanakh and Halakha at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies and serves as the director of the Beit Midrash for the Pardes Center for Jewish Educators. Rabbi Hatton has authored several Koran volumes, and his prose is always enlightening and a pleasure to read. He's going to speak to us tonight about his newest book on Sefer Shoftim. Rabbi Hatton's books on both, both Yehoshua and Shoftim remind us that these Sfarim are not only brilliant narrative works, but like the later prophets, are also essential for understanding the theological messages of Tanakh. Rabbi Hatton's readings are erudite and creative, without losing sight of the broad political and moral quandaries raised in these early prophetic books. Rabbi Hatton, we're looking forward to hearing from you, and we hope you can reflect on our guiding question for the evening. How is your chosen Sefer, Sefer Shoftim, essential to our understanding of Tanakh as a whole? Looking forward to hearing about the book. Thank you, Sarah. Um, so a little bit in contrast to Dr. Genzel, I'm going to start from broader question and then hopefully focus in on Sefer Shoftim, the Book of Judges in particular. So the question is, how is your chosen Sefer essential to our understanding of Tanakh as a whole? I would say that there's a rather ambitious task ahead of me, which is to somehow distill an understanding of Tanakh as a whole into a few short moments. I'm going to attempt that. I'm going to suggest if I were to distill everything that Tanakh stands for into a single laden phrase, I would say that Tanakh as a whole is the living record of the encounter between God and humanity, between God and the Jewish people, and between God and the individual, with the Jewish people taking center stage in that breakdown. When I refer Tanakh to Tanakh as a living record, what I mean by that is, even though the events, the moments in Tanakh are moments in time and in specific time, nevertheless, they are timeless in that they offer us inspiration and guidance for all generations. To put it differently, if we understand Tanakh to be divinely inspired or divinity itself, depending on the book in question, then that implies that Tanakh remains a wellspring for us to draw from, to draw upon in order to inform our own lives forever. The encounter between God and the people of Israel or the individual or humanity generates the following. Number one, instruction and teaching. The Tanakh provides guidance for us on how to live more constructive and meaningful lives. Number two, the Tanakh makes moral and ethical demands as the encounter between God and the people of Israel unfolds. What, uh, what are our responsibilities towards others? to relieve injustice, 
to correct oppression. The encounter between God and the Jewish people or God and humanity or the individual generates inspiration and hope. How to overcome failure and setback. How to be forgiving and how to be forgiven. The encounter generates comfort and succor. How can we face down tragedy? How can we remain unbowed in the face of mortality and death? And finally, the encounter between God and the people of Israel as refracted through the Tanakh teaches us about appreciation, to celebrate life's successes and joys with gratitude and with humility. The encounter between God and the Jewish people asks of us to define our identity. Who are we as the Jewish people? What do we stand for? What is our mission in the world? Sefer Shoftim is a critical period. I think all of the speakers are going to say that their particular book describes a critical period in Israelite history. And it's all true. A defining period in the formation of our national identity. The entry into the land on the one hand, call that the book of Joshua. The beginnings of monarchy on the other hand, call that Sefer Shemuel, the book of Samuel. And in between this incredibly fraught transition called Sefer Shoftim or the book of Judges. In terms of the timeline, Sefer Shoftim covers more than 300 years. Some books, as Dr. Ganzel pointed out, cover a couple of decades. And some biblical books cover centuries. This is one of those books. So these are centuries of transition. The entire biblical timeline from the Exodus until the restoration after the exile to Babylon is approximately a thousand years. If we throw Abraham and Sarah into the mix, it's going to add another four or five hundred. But the lion's share of that timeline is the exodus from Egypt until the exile and the destruction, and a few short decades later, the restoration, the beginning of the Second Temple period, which means that Sefer Shoftim covers roughly on the timeline a third of that, which makes it very significant. As I said, Sefer Shoftim is a fraught transition. The entry into the land was completed under Joshua, but now the real work begins of setting down roots, of transitioning from a nomadic life to a settled life, to an agricultural life, and of forging a national identity in the shadow of a prevailing culture, a majority culture, a Canaanite culture, which in many ways is inimical to our mission and to our values. Call that, as it were, facing down the external threat. But the Book of Judges also describes an internal threat, and that threat is called tribalism. In tribalism, Every tribe is in it for themselves. Their focus is narrow. 
what's best for me. There are no leaders in Sefer Shoftim that are able to create a unified people of Israel. Everything always resolves itself along the tribal fault lines, often with disastrous consequences. What are those things that we share in common? Be they history or values or culture or language. What are those things that can unite us if there are such things? So paired with the external threat, the Canaanite culture that looms large and is so attractive, even as it stands in dire contrast to ethical monotheism, is the internal threat of division, of tribes refusing to work together, unable to overcome their sectarian interests, to join in some sort of a national project. Those are the fundamental challenges of the book. And I would argue, viewed from that angle, Sefer Shoftim is as contemporary, contemporary as could possibly be. Many of us, whether we are living in Israel or living in the diaspora, are living in the shadow of an overwhelming culture or cultural values that are inimical to our identity as the Jewish people and certainly the internal divisions that often threaten to tear us apart are part and parcel of what it is to be living in the contemporary world as a Jew. So therefore, even as the Tanakh describes a encounter, a timeless record, as I put it, of the encounter between God and the Jewish people, what makes it timeless is the fact that it speaks to us today with exactly the same urgency that it spoke thousands of years to thousands of years ago. So if the fundamental question was, how is my chosen safer essential to our understanding of Tanakh as a whole? I would say, to paraphrase, the book of Judges is essential to our understanding of Jewish peoplehood as a whole. I'd like to thank, by the way, Koren for doing such a magnificent job in their publication and also the sponsors who generously gave of their uh, support in order for the project to come to life. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Hatton, for that wonderful reflection. Again, I think you hear Rabbi Hatton's ability to think extremely broadly about major issues of the Book of Shoftim and Tanakh in general while simultaneously drawing our attention to their crucial details. For this, for more of this, please check out Judges, The Perils of Possession on the Koran website at a wonderful discount of 20% off with the discount MST Live. Thank you so much, Rabbi Hatton. And I am now honored to introduce, it's just like a treasure box of wonderful speakers tonight, um, Rabbi Yaakov Beasley a popular and passionate teacher of Bible in North America and Israel. He's the Tanakh coordinator at Yeshivat Hasder Lev HaTorah and the host of the Tanakh Talks podcast. In Rabbi Yaakov Beasley's book, uh, Lights in the Valley, he explores three understudied books of the Bible, 
Nachum, Chabakuk, and Safania, and illuminates them on every level in the context of the ancient Near East, as they've been understood in Jewish tradition, in terms of their literary artistry, as well as philosophically and theologically. If you don't know why you read Nachum, Chabakuk, and Safania, Lights in the Valley makes a case why these prophets' messages are as relevant now as they ever were. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Sarah, and thank you to Maggie for organizing this. Thank you also to the Allen family who were the sponsors and dedicated my the book for their father, Albert Allen Zichronoli Vracha. I want to start with a little story to answer the question why this these books are so essential. When I first started working on these works, a dear friend of mine, Rabbi Menachem Cooperman, came up to me and said, "You're working." You're not doing the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. You should know that. You're not doing the mitzvah of Torah study. What you're doing is mit mitzvah. Mitzvah in the Torah that to take care of an abandoned body to make sure it is given a proper, treated of proper respect. And I've thought about it because for the most part, I found working on Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah and their wonderful words to be sometimes a lonely experience because most people haven't read these books, unfortunately, and most people aren't there to talk about it. They nod your head, their heads, and they say, well, that's not, sounds interesting, and maybe I'll get a chance to read them someday. Well, that day is here, and I'm going to try to share with you why I feel these books are so essential. Rabbi Hatton made a distinction about the fact that the books are not only timely, timely but timeless, They're the eternal meaning I want to go back from the timeless messages back to their timely messages. In the beginning of the book, I try to establish the time period in which these three live. Because they all live in a very close to each other within decades. And this is a very interesting period in Jewish history. And when God is silent, it's a time when God is absent. In the year 721, the Assyrians exiled the north. Two decades later, Sancherev and his hordes come to Judah. And while we know the happy ending, as it were, they are saved by the gates of Jerusalem. For the most part, 46 cities in Judah are destroyed, burnt. Their scarred remains on the hilltops. You could see them. All that was left was Yerushalayim. There was nothing else. And when Hezekiah stood up to the Assyrians, died several years later, his young son Manasseh says it's not worth our while to fight the Assyrians. Instead, he becomes a vassal puppet to them. And for 55 long years, there's no freedom for the people. No bait to Megdash. There is a Beit HaMikdash standing, but they worship the Assyrian God there. There's no Nevi'im. Nobody is speaking the God. There's no Torah. And perhaps most scary of all, maybe the Assyrians were right. Maybe their gods, their culture, their way of life were stronger. Maybe this was the inevitable end of the Jewish people, God forbid. But to appreciate how brave these Nevi'im are, 
we have to understand when rabbinic texts talk about Menashe, they talk about him killing off prophets, including Isaiah, possibly his own. There is no dissent allowed. You don't speak against the Assyrians. You don't speak against the institution and the establishment. And yet three Nevi'im stand up. Suddenly, in the middle of the 7th century before the common era, maybe 650, maybe 640, the exact dates aren't clear, three separate Nevi'im deliver their message. The first is Nahum. Nahum speaks out in the most passionate poetry, impressionistic and visionary description imaginable of the downfall of the Assyrian Empire. At a time when it was zenith, at its strength, they had just invaded Egypt, not just Egypt, they had invaded Noamon, Thebes, which is 1,500 kilometers south of the Nile Delta. They had conquered the world. Nahum says, they'll fall too. And they deserve it. Because although justice may slumber, it will not sleep. God will come for them. Next up is Habakkuk. Habakkuk turns to God and he says, really? Is this how you're running the world? He is perhaps the Nevi'im's most articulate formulator of the eternal question, Sadik Tovlo. Why is it that we see the righteous suffer? Why do we see the wicked prosper? God, what is it doing to you? But how are we supposed to see you in this world? And that is the first chapter of his of Habakkuk. God answers him twice, once in chapter two, once in chapter three. Each chapter is worthy of a class in its own, not 10 minutes, but 10 hours. It's a fania. Menashe dies. Two years later, his young grandson comes to sit on the, a young boy named Yoshiao. And for the first decade of his life, Yoshiao is simply continuing what was done before. But suddenly, Tsefania speaks up and he says, we have an opportunity now. The Assyrians all of a sudden become weaker. Historically, we see that Ashurbanipal's reign becomes less stable. The Scythians from the north and the Medians from the east and the Persians and all of a sudden the Babylonians awaken in 626. And while this doesn't directly affect, slowly but surely we start to see a glimpse of an opportunity. A ray of light that shines through and says, grab me. Take advantage of what's now. Yoshiao tells the people, his phrase described the people at the time, it's so poetic. Hanashim hakofim al shimreim. They're like wine that has sat so the layer of the lees, the layer of the waste that is just floating. It's no longer fresh. People are just numb. They're not afraid. Why are they dumb? Ha'omrim. 
God will not do good. God will not do evil. In other words, God is not part of our world anymore. And your Tsefania comes and tells them, oh, but there will be a Yom Hashem. There will be an opportunity. And it's not going to, it may be pleasant. It may not be pleasant. It may be very dark. It's up to you. What do you choose to do? What, how do you choose to act? All three of these Nivim together, tie together to create one very interesting message. Even when you think God is quiet, even when you feel that you can't sense God's presence and everything is just the same as it's been and nothing changes, be patient, wait, trust. Evil will always get repaid. That's the promise of Nachum. Look at the way history, that's the message of Chabakuk. And understand that things will move forward. We think that we were so calm and comfortable when we could, were making plans and budgets and what we're going to do this year and next year. And then all of a sudden 2020 came and the world turned on its head. And we're all sitting here now picking up the pieces. Sometimes life is like that barrel of wine in Tefania's metaphor. It's just sitting there forever. You can see the layer of the leaves, but you can't live life that way. You have to always be ready. When opportunities come, you have to take advantage of them. Tefania finished the most, I think, the most beautiful, very short, but most poetic description of what a redeemed world looks like. And as Rabbi Hatton said, this is not just a book. The Bible is not just a book for the Jewish people. It's a book for all of humanity. And Sefania echoes that by drawing not on words from our fathers and our avot and our stories, but going back to Breshit, going back to Bigdal Bavel, the original plans that God had for the world and God's hope that all of humanity would one day be able to speak with one language together in peace. And those are the three books that I wrote about. That was beautiful. Uh, thank you so much, Rabbi Beasley. Rabbi Beasley mentions the sometimes lonely experience writing about remarkable books that few people have read. I encourage our viewers to alleviate some of this loneliness um, by studying these Sfarim with the aid of Rabbi Beasley's outstanding book. Trust me, you will not regret it. Once again, about all of these books um, are available now at a discounted rate on the Corin website with the code MSTLIVE. Thank you so much to all of our amazing speakers. Um, and now we are going to take a step back and uh, maybe um, answer one last question before we go. Uh, I'm going to uh, start with... Dr. Ganzel. So there are a lot of great lines in Dr. Ganzel's book. And uh, one line that jumped out to me is the last one where she says, sometimes it seems like the word of Ezekiel the seer is not yet complete. Kind of leaves us there. <laughs> um, and I wanted to ask if you could explain more about what you mean there. What specifically is incomplete and how can we begin to complete it? Well, um, thank you again. Thank you to everyone. Um, 
don't remember exactly what I was referring to there, that sentence, I'll just be honest. But I will say that I think one of the things that's very, uh, that leaves us with a uh, feeling that there's something that's not complete here are the last nine chapters of the book. Um, and that's part of the restoration program that we have in Ezekiel. I'm very careful to call it restoration and not redemption because I feel that redemption prophecies are more characteristic of Isaiah. They're more characteristic of other prophets that really there's something more, I would say, glorifying in their redemption. Ezekiel uh, has in, in a certain, in many ways, he's toned down. It's restoration. The people don't do tshuva. This is not, you know, the full dream we anticipated on the one hand. On the other hand, it does have a temple. Um, we know this temple wasn't built uh, in Shivatzion. You know, 50 years after the, the temple was destroyed, we have a Tzarat Koresh, 20 more years, and there's another temple built in Jerusalem. It's just not Ezekiel's temple vision. And the questions um, of what exactly this temple was meant to be, and was it ever meant to materialize, or was it just a theoretical plan, um, they continue to bother the rabbis throughout the centuries. Uh, the Rambam says that we don't know uh, how to explain this temple if, in Ezekiel, and maybe one day we'll, they'll, Eliyahu and Avi will come and tell us, so what, what was this blueprint about? I mean, is this something that we're supposed to be accept, expect to ever happen? Um, my sense is that it, it teaches us a bigger teaching. It teaches us that uh, sometimes prophecies are very, very substantial, even when they don't materialize, because the vision uh, is very important in, of, in, of, in it of itself. And I think that's something to think about. What are the messages that actually materialized? What, how do we address prophecies that never materialized? Um, in what way are they still relevant to our lives, if not at all? What makes them so special and, want, uh, and, and really drive us to continue learning and relearning them? Thank you so much. And yeah, and that's part of actually what I really appreciated about your book. I think you have a wonderful way of both, both articulating what we can understand about the book of Yechaskel and also what we can't understand and leaving us uh, yearning for more, both in terms of understanding and also maybe, you know, more globally, uh, some, you know, some more restoration. Uh, thank you so much. And I want to actually kind of build on that question. Um, and ask something similar uh, both to Rabbi Hatton and to Rabbi Beasley. Um, you know, to what extent do the words of your prophets, whether it's the the Book of Shoftim, you know, in general, or uh, the the three prophets, <laughs> Nachum, uh, Habakkuk, and Sephania, choose your choose your prophet. Um, to what extent do these words still need to be heard and realized in the world today? Uh, who's going first? Rabbi H.B. All righty. So I, I think, honestly, in the case of uh, my book, it's, so to speak, a no-brainer. Uh, it seems to me that the issues that Sefer Shoftim discusses are so incredibly relevant to our situation today as Jews, wherever we happen to be living. Um, I'll just say that Sefer Shoftim is not simply a collection of, uh, you know, however number of regional leaders, but it's actually also a story of precipitous decline, uh, where that decline to large measure is absolutely due first and foremost to poor leadership and poor leadership decisions. 
And of course, leadership is so important in defining the success of a community, of a people, of a nation, of a state. Leadership is always a contemporary issue and good leadership is obviously a contemporary issue as well. I said earlier that the challenges that the book presents us with um, come in two forms, fundamentally. One is a challenge which is dictated by sort of the external aspect and the other is more internal. And I think both of those challenges, again, are, are extremely contemporary, whether you're living in the state of Israel or living uh, elsewhere in a Jewish community. Um, we are always confronted with cultural values that are not necessarily the product of uh, Jewish tradition or not necessarily the product of a monotheistic ethical tradition. And those cultural values have an awful lot of power and an awful lot of sway. And we have to decide what of those values can be imbibed, absorbed, built upon, uh, embraced and what of those values must be rejected that that is exactly the challenge in Sefer Shoftim the people enter the land and they are immediately confronted by a cultural system which is already in place which is larger than they are which is regional and they have to make very very uh, I would say fateful decisions about how to proceed at the same time as I said the internal divisions in Sefer Shoftim are so uh, glaring, uh, and in, in large measure, they are, they are uh, driven by a sectarian way of looking at the world where my concern is uh, narrow, where my focus is narrow, where my loyalty is to the clan or to the tribe. And maybe the framing has changed today. We no longer speak about the tribes of Israel, but we can still absolutely speak about tribalism in contemporary Judaism and how that's reflected in everything that happens communally, whether you're outside the land of Israel or nationally within the land, that challenge remains in place. And therefore I would say Sefer Shoftim offers a cautionary message to us all and hopefully as well some guidance as to how those challenges can actually be met successfully. Okay, I'll try to answer the question with one sentence from each me a message, as it were, from each of the Navim, because each one gives a different message reacting to this period of time when it appears God is not present. The first is Nahum. And I've actually watched, felt Nahum's re relevance so much in the past year. We, The question of authoritarianism, the question of countries that trample on freedoms, countries that override the human rights of others. Nahum, when he comes after Assyria, he doesn't just talk about its downfall, which in itself was a very brave thing to do, just to predict. But he also talks about why this is so important, why this is necessary, if God has any sense of justice. And it's a sense of trust that Nahum states over Ultimately, no, it will not have, God cannot allow it. When it comes to Habakkuk, of course, Habakkuk is known for the fact that he turns to God and he questions it. And there's a debate among the Mepharshim whether or not the first verses that Habakkuk says, are they part of the Nebuah or not? Are they part of the prophecy? 
in which he challenges God. But many of Farshim say, yes, there is religious value in asking questions. There is really more than that. We aren't supposed to sit back and allow things to happen to us. And while we are supposed to inflect and look upon ourselves, we also have to look to God and say, what are you doing? Can we please in some level um, learn deep in this relationship so I'll be able to understand what's going on? This isn't rebellion. This is, in fact, the highest form of loyalty to God by questioning. And Habakkuk personifies it more than no other. And finally, Tsefania. Tsefania, I find perhaps to be the most touching because for all of his talk of Yom Hashem, of all his talk of this great cataclysmic day in which you may don't see God coming yet, but I know he's coming and it will be dark and horrifying and with wind and rain and thunder and all these images of everything be overturned. If you ask Stefani what to do, baksu mishpat, baksu anava, be just, be humble. That's all that God ever asks. What does God ask from us? Stefania's answer to us is so simple. We still have to not give up the ghost. We still have to try to be better people. What it means to be a good person, simple. Are you just? Are you fair? And you have maintained your sense of humility. And I think these are the messages that still cry out today. Thank you so much to our speakers and for your insightful reflections tonight. Again, it's just a small taste of what's in store for you if you read these wonderful, rich, and enlightening books available right now on the Corin website at 20% off um, with the code MSTLIVE. Before we leave, I'd like to thank Alex Drucker, Arie Grossman, and Karen Meltz for their amazing behind-the-scenes efforts in coordinating this series. And in general, I personally want to thank the teachers and scholars behind the Magid Studies and Tanakh series. You make Tanakh come alive for us and deepen our connection with the central text of the Jewish people. And for that, I personally and all of us are grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.